the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. You might want to think of a small bit of, you know, gold or silver as a holiday gift this this winter. So there you go. As we head into the Thanksgiving week, we are playing for you some of our best interviews we've had so far in our now over 100 episodes of Sideline Sanity. In this episode, I am going to cut down two of the interviews that I've done with two of my former colleagues at NBC Sports, the first being Bob Costas, the second being the great Tony Dungy, both Hall of Famers. Now, neither of them needs any introduction. So let me lean into things this way. Bob Costas is a broadcasting icon, period, the end. He has forgotten more about Olympic events than I will or any mortal man will ever have in their minds. The sheer volume of work that Bob Costas has produced is ridiculous, incredible. We could never cover it all. But in this episode, we covered some of the highlights and some of the lowlights. And you might be surprised at his final words of this interview. And this was from episode one of Sideline Sanity. Bob, you've done so much television. I mean, so much. Um, what are you most proud of? You're never necessarily the best judge of yourself. But I would think that my career over time has had texture to it. A lot of different boxes have been checked, not just in terms of the assignments themselves, but I hope in terms of the way I approach those assignments. So I hope that there's an element of journalism. I hope that there's an element of history. Um, an example I've used before is that over time, you can't do it in any one broadcast or it's rare to do it. But over time, I would hope that my career has been like a good edition of Sports Illustrated. It has some topicality. It has some celebration of the excitement, the drama, the shared experience and the people involved. It has some journalism. It has some commentary but it also has some humor to it. You want that texture. If you're always hitting one or only a couple of notes, yeah. even if you do it very well, then I think something is missing. If there's a canvas there, and if in the end you step back and that canvas has broad strokes, but also some little shadings in it, then that's what I was aiming for. Well, okay. So little shadings. Maybe we'll start there. Because, you, you know, you've delivered countless 
uh, for back of, lack of a better term, we'll call them essays, whether it's been mm-hmm. during halftime of a, of a game, whatever. Yeah. Sometimes they're topical. Sometimes they're celebrating the people or, or the place that we are. Sometimes they're sadly obituaries. Yeah. Uh, when you sat down to write any one of those, what was your first objective, your first goal in composing those? Well, one of the things you have to take into account is how much time do I have? Yeah. These days on HBO, the closing commentary on the show can be anywhere from five to six minutes. It's never been less than three. Um, but there was never one at halftime of Sunday Night Football that was any longer than two or maybe 2.15. Um, so you have to consider the audience. You have to consider what the topic is. And then how much time do you have? Uh, here on a podcast, you're much more open-ended than if I were a guest of yours on the Today Show, let's say. We'd have to right. get to all of it just in the time that we've spent setting this up. Uh, yeah. By my little countdown in the corner, we're approaching four minutes. That might be an entire segment <laughs> on the Today Show. So you're taking all of that into account. But then also, it's what is what is the subject? Um, if someone were to ask me, and again, I don't think it changed the course of Western civilization, but if someone to ask, were to ask me, what do I do when it comes to essays? I'd say Google my appreciation of Muhammad Ali the morning after he died. Uh, I was doing a a baseball game for the MLB Network in St. Louis, and Sam Flood, uh, the executive producer at NBC, called me and said, you know, Muhammad Ali has died, found out about it in the middle of the game. We need you here to do something that we can put on between periods of a Stanley Cup finals game later that day. So I hopped on a 6 a.m. flight, and you know how I hate to get up that early. I'm not, I'm not functional until noon. But I, I hopped on the flight uh, and I wrote something. You know how old school I am. I don't have the technology. So I'm taking a pen and writing it on the back of a boarding pass. And then I went in and, and delivered it. And I guess it's about three minutes long. Um, but I think that that typifies what I'm aiming for. And the subject matter was big enough. In, in this case, the epic career and life of Ali that kind of typifies what I try to do if I'm given the right subject and enough time to do justice to it. Right. It, time is so critical, as you said, because what, I mean, I usually had 20 seconds of pop on Sunday Night Football, so that really limited what I could say. And uh, obviously, it, when you're trying to get deep into a subject, and a, a, a couple of times you did go into some areas that people maybe would have said to you, Hey, Bob, could you just stick to sports? Mm-hmm. And, and first of all, for all of those that say to me or to Bob or to anybody stick to sports, I'll just say, no, I'm going to do whatever I want. But yeah. if you look at your overall, I mean, the, the hundreds and hundreds of pieces that you wrote, and then we get to 2012 and halftime of the Eagles Dallas game. And it was the week that there was a murder suicide committed by then Kansas city chief, mm-hmm. uh, Javon Belcher. And it was it was such a shocking story, and yeah. it was really the right story for you to address. But the reaction, you know, the right went, oh, he's attacking the Second Amendment. And the left went, gun control, yay. What do you remember about the immediate reaction to that? Well, it was a whirlwind, and the angriest voices are always louder than the more appreciative voices. So the angry voices were uh, the right wing and the NRA types, but... I, as we've discussed privately, that's one of the great regrets of my career, not because of the blowback, but because I booted it, Um, not because I took on the subject, but because I took too much for granted. But before I get to that, 
yeah. let me just stipulate this. People are entitled to their own opinion. But as Daniel Patrick Moynihan many years ago famously said, you're not entitled to your own facts. Right. Although in the present atmosphere, you actually are. Anything <laughs> be true is true, no matter how scant the evidence is. Anything you don't want to be true is not true, even if there's a mountain of evidence and a choir of angels attesting to it. If you don't want it to be true, you can go to some bubble that will affirm what you want to be true and dismiss yeah. what you don't want to be true. But right. this is an objective mathematical fact. It is not a matter of opinion. As you said, there were well over 100 of those halftime things. Many of them were just promos for what's coming up next week. And some <laughs> yeah. of them were, hey, did you see what happened? The crazy ending of this game or that game or something amusing or an appreciation of someone who passed away, that kind of thing. Of all of them, two, exactly two, the gun thing and the thing about the Redskins team name could even in someone's wildest imagination be characterized as political. Now, I get it if someone objects to the content of any of those things, but the idea he always used that platform to push his politics is yeah. objectively false. It and is. if you looked over the course of my career, all the games, all the, the pregame things, the setup pieces, the dramatic stuff on the NBA, on NBC, or the baseball games, it would be a tiny fraction of 1% tiny. that ever intersected with, with politics. And but I think this lines up... This lines up with what you were saying about facts and having your own facts. People decided That's that right. this is who Bob Costas was. He was this politically injected yeah. politics into everything he did, which is insane right. to me. So, uh, but people right. wanted to believe that. Yeah, and I and I see that from time to time, Michelle, where uh, it's always advisable if you want to maintain your sanity, and this is sideline sanity, uh, not is. to pay too much attention, attention to comments, but sometimes yeah. you take a look at them. And what you often see is I used to love Bob Costas, but then he made everything <laughs> political. So the hell with him. Yeah. Well, yeah. first of all, you know, if you didn't like Jane Fonda on a tank, okay, during <laughs> the Vietnam War, that doesn't mean she didn't win those Academy Awards and that she's a bad actress. And if right. on the other side, you didn't like Bob Hope waving the flag, you can't say that those movies with Dorothy Lamore and Bing Crosby weren't good. They were fabulous good. films, okay. you know, so, so there's, so there's that, but right. You know, I think a lot of times once something is repeated, that's what people think. They may have been confusing seeing me on CNN or even a, a program like this with the games themselves. I've done play-by-play -play of baseball for a very long time. Um, it's the game. There's, yeah. I would never do it. It's First of all, it's not the right thing to do. Secondly, it's ineffective because you can't get that stuff in parenthetically. Right. And if it was during the Olympics or something – it wasn't like when Michael Phelps was about to jump in the pool or Simone Biles or Usain Bolt were about to do their thing. Not once, not ever. But right. if anyone thinks that there aren't times when politics have intersected with the Olympics, they must be living on another planet. I Sometimes, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, Munich 72. I mean, it, we yeah. could go on and on about that kind of stuff. And that belongs in Olympic coverage. But like you said, it's not as though you'd, you know, and Michael Phelps just won the gold, but he should have thought about, you know, it's, it was never like no, that. Never, never. never. And so we're going to circle back. I'm not avoiding yeah. it. Yeah, I know. To the gun thing, but I'm just trying to create um, the context here, especially at the Olympics. A lot of the things that I thought deserve to be highlighted ought to resonate with centrists and conservatives. In 1996, 
when the Chinese came in in Atlanta, yeah. I said, here are the Chinese, economy growing rapidly. Everyone wants in on that economy, but there are many concerns, human rights concerns, the threat to Taiwan. They want to host an Olympics. At that point, they hadn't been granted the, the Beijing Olympics, right. but it's very problematic because of concerns about uh, their human rights record. This is in 1996. And if there is any nation that could replicate the old Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc sports machine for all that implies, okay, you're looking at that nation. This was so problematic in the minds of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, the internet was in its early days, they demanded that either I be fired or that I issue an abject public apology in prime time, neither of which happened. Um, when when I mentioned when the Saudi Arabia came in at a subsequent Olympics, the IOC is hoping for something close to 50-50 parity, men and women. But it's worth noting, therefore, there is no woman in this delegation, not an athlete, not an official, no woman in this delegation. When the IOC would not acknowledge the 40th anniversary of the slaughtering of the Israeli athletes by Palestinian terrorists, I mentioned that on the opening ceremony. Is that a left-wing position, oh, not even a right-wing position. It's a common-sense position, just like what I said about China was. Every time I interviewed in the last three Olympics uh, that I did, uh, either Jacques Rogo or Thomas Bach, the heads of the IOC, one of my questions was, what is this with the IOC's affinity for authoritarian regimes? The way I put it in Sochi um, to Thomas Bach is, are you uh, comfortable with the Olympic flag flying and the Olympic torch burning over Vladimir Putin's Russia. Uh, is that a, a left-wing position? You know, so I think what I've done by and large, and even my more conservative friends, you included, who really know me, who've had these conversations over dinner, you know that I'm not some wacky left-wing guy. If I was, I wouldn't back away from it. I won't back away from anything I've truly said or I truly believe. So I'm not trying to like do damage control because maybe your audience will include a larger proportion of people who lean right than lean left. I stand by anything I really have said and really believe. But a, a fair read of that would say, you know, I'm kind of a, a classic left of center person who grew up in the 1970s when that meant supporting civil rights, supporting gay rights, supporting women's rights, thinking we should get our, get the hell out of Vietnam, being more open-minded and compassionate, and believing in that kind of politics. It didn't mean the woke world now, which right. challenges common sense on a daily basis. It doesn't mean extreme identity politics, right. which take the individual out of it. It doesn't mean cancel culture. It doesn't mean some of the craziness that not only do I not sign on to, but I oppose. That's who I really am. Um, and I would never, I, I would never abuse, I'm there to present, by and large, through the years at NBC, there to present big sports events. Again, anyone who knows me knows that I revel in the drama of that, the excitement of that, the shared experience. I, I'm pretty sentimental about a lot of it. I'm you not, are a bit of a romantic, yes. Yeah, there's, you know, there, there's a romantic element. 
But then there's also a journalistic element. Yes. There's a serious element. And then there's the guy who did all the stuff on Letterman and Conan and Saturday Night Live. I think right. sometimes people want to put you in a tiny little box and you can't be a, a wide variety of things. All right. So now that's now I framed the whole thing. Now you back have. To- and, and before we get back to this, Javon, uh, why am I missing? Thank Javon you. Belcher. Belcher. What, what you did in 96 with the questions, of, with the statements about China in the opening ceremony, mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about those now. Those are the same damn concerns we have at this moment about China. No and question. that's neither left nor right. That's just factual. That's just, yep. it is what it is. So that's, it's and remarkable way, to hear you talk by about By the that. way, where it, where it uh, connects to sports, and I've said this on HBO and elsewhere, uh, it's kind of an uncomfortable position, isn't it? For some socially conscious American athletes who speak out repeatedly about the ills of their own admittedly imperfect country. But then because they're in bed financially, uh, the NBA is deeply in bed in China. Then they're conspicuously mum. I'm not downplaying the injustices, both historic and present, in the United States, but especially at present. Whatever is wrong with our country pales alongside a country which, as a matter of policy, commits genocide and and has a whole array of human rights violations. It pales alongside Putin's Russia, and it pales alongside present-day China and China for a, a very long time. Now, if you can't acknowledge those things, I think that certainly lessens your credibility when yep. you talk about some injustice uh, that we find that we find here at home. Totally agree. And I want to circle, I, I can't believe I'm going to say circle back. I wanted to ban that phrase. Uh, I just said it too. So uh, yeah, <laughs> so, I know. Okay. Uh, we, we will come around to that topic again. Uh, Cause I want to ask you about the way I feel about LeBron James and we will. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Javon Belcher. So this is the regret that you have. You call it. Yeah. The, the is it the it's, biggest it's, regret? It's way up there. It's way okay. up there. You know, you're and, going to, even even if you're a pretty good fielder, you're going to boot some now and then. And of I, course. It, so here's what uh, happened. Yeah. Okay? The, the murder-suicide takes place on Saturday. Uh, everybody has touched upon it, uh, both in a news context like Sports Center or whatever, and then all the pregame shows throughout the day, as you know better than anyone, Sunday night was the end. Our broadcast on Sunday night was the end of the NFL weekend. And the entire halftime before I came on had been given over. Uh, they didn't do highlights at all. They, they had a bunch of sound. Brady Quinn was then the quarterback, I think, of the Chiefs. And he was very poignant in his comments. Uh, it was all devoted to that. Usually, whatever I would have done, I would have written as soon as the, the pregame show was over. I would have written it during the first quarter or something. Um, and I wasn't even sure they wanted me to comment. And then they told me, yeah, we want you to do something. But I only had like 90 seconds. Oh. And I had, I had an idea that I'd been carrying around for a long time because there are a number of sports cliches that just annoy me because they're so mindless. One of which is when something tragic happens, that really puts it all in perspective. Mm-hmm. That's BS. We know that. Mm-hmm. The perspective is yeah. going to last until after the next commercial yeah. or maybe until the next game. And then we'll begin obsessing over who the Falcons will take in the fourth round of the draft. All right. So I wanted to take a shot at that. And so that was my preamble. Uh, Whenever something like this happens, you know, that really puts it all in perspective. You know, let's get real. If you really want some perspective, 
maybe we should concentrate on this. And one of our producers, I'm not going to throw him under the bus because it's all on me. In the end, I'm the goalie. Someone can suggest anything, but I've got to sign off on it, so it's my responsibility. Showed me something which Jason Whitlock, ironically now a hero of the rather extreme right, uh, but Jason Whitlock, a uh, longtime Kansas City sports writer with whom I had been friendly, wrote a long thing about this, and part of it was not about gun control, but about what he perceived to be a gun culture in sports. And that is real. You know, if you were to say, if you were to Google athletes and guns and then scroll the number of criminality, folly, tragedy uh, on one side of the screen and then in the name of balance, here's all the times that an athlete with a gun turned a bad situation around for the better. The one would be very long and the other would be very short. And that has nothing to do with support of the Second Amendment or not. It has to do with attitudes. Think of the things that were out there in the relatively recent past. Gilbert Arenas pulling a gun in the Wizards locker room on a teammate. Ray Carruth with a murder for hire. Tank Johnson with an artillery in his house that could arm a small country. Um, sub subsequent to that, Greg Hardy with the assault yeah. weapons and he's beating up his girlfriend and throws her on a bed with assault weapons. What does this have to do with someone using having a gun for a responsible, legitimate, lawful reason. It has nothing to do with it. So to me, that was self-evident, talking about a gun culture. That was my mistake. I should have realized that that even going there, and, and I quoted what Jason Whitlock had written yeah. about uh, a gun culture and how it never leads to anything good, that that would immediately trigger, no pun intended, uh, a reaction from the NRA types and from people who don't want to perhaps deal in nuance or give anybody the benefit of the doubt, oh, he wants to take our guns away. He wants to abrogate the Second Amendment. There's still places where I'm called the gun grabber, Bob Costas. You know how many guns have been grabbed even when Obama was president? Zero. They proliferated. Does anybody, all these constitutional scholars, do any of them know what it takes to overturn a, a, a constitutional amendment and how impossible it would be just as a practical matter how impossible it would be and I do not support that when I read a story of a single mother who has a gun and someone's breaking into her house and she blows their head off because she's protecting her kids not only do I not have a problem with that I applaud right. that I right. applaud it okay someone someone passes a background check and, and shows that they're a responsible human being and, and they want a concealed carry permit, I'm okay with that as well, right? Mm -hmm. But what I did was I assumed, and, and maybe I should have gotten outside my own little bubble, although I do think I really don't live in a bubble. I'm more open-minded than most people. I've always read the New York Times on the one hand and the Wall Street Journal on the other. And my YouTube feed must be close to unique because I get stuff from Fox News, I get stuff from MSNBC and everything in between because I clicked <laughs> on all of it. I want to see yeah. what people what people are saying, but I took too much for granted in that moment that what I was saying would be clear to everybody and it wasn't. But also I missed a better opportunity. That story was tangentially about a gun culture, but it was primarily about domestic violence. And I had a platform that you could sometimes use for good. And I missed the chance to do it because domestic violence is not a left-right no. issue. No. It's an important issue. 
And I could have said that, and I, I could have done it right off the top of my head, and I should have. If we really want some perspective, we ought to think about a number of issues, think seriously about them, not just tonight, but going forward, including domestic violence. And are those who play a violent and belligerent sport in a macho culture more inclined toward that particular offense than their athletic peers? What about the effects of football itself, damage to the prefrontal cortex Mm -hmm. and diminished uh, quality of judgment? What about if it's mixed with alcohol and performance-enhancing drugs or whatever it might be? And then also, if there was time, the whole attitude that too many people have toward guns, not talking here about anyone's legitimate, lawful, responsible exercise of their Second Amendment rights, but talking about an irresponsible attitude toward guns, which permeates too much of the athletic world. Now, that part would have gotten some blowback from Wayne LaPierre, no matter what, because they always go from from A to Z and from zero to 102 seconds on that, because even addressing that subject means that, as they once put it, jackbooted thugs will come to your house and take all your guns away, and then little old ladies <laughs> will be at the mercy of, of criminals. Um, okay, so, but the domestic violence was the most important part. So what I regret more than the fact that, that I caught a lot of heat and that there are some people who still think that I'm some sort of extreme left winger on this, I wish that hadn't happened, But what I really regret most was that I missed the opportunity to make a legitimate, important point in front of a very large audience about domestic violence. I screwed that part up. And before I finish with this topic, when did you it come to your mind that, damn it, it would have been better for me to have gone there than where I went? By later that night when we were off the night. And I was on the on the plane. NBC usually had a, a charter back. Were we in Dallas that night? Yeah. We might not have left because yeah. it was Dallas. It's such a long flight. We might not have left um, until the next morning. Um, so, you know, certainly by that night back in the hotel or the next morning on the plane, it's like, you dumbass. <laughs> you oh. really missed that. <laughs> I love the honesty Bob showed there, the vulnerability and the admission of a – clearly he's a perfectionist at what he does, that he – he was a dumbass. What more could you ask for in an interview? Listen, Legacy Precious Metals is the only group that I trust when investing in gold and silver. You hear from a lot of gold and silver companies, precious metals companies, but I trust Legacy Precious Metals because of their attention to their customers, you, and because of the way that they deal with each customer individually and answer the questions that need to be answered. Now, these are financially crazy times, right? Absolutely nuts. Everyone's pinching their pennies, everyone, in to whatever degree that means. But you can't forget about your long term. You can't forget about hedging against inflation or protecting against a weakening dollars. You can't forget about 2008 when those who invested in gold saw really nice gains and others simply lost their retirements. So I'm going to recommend that you at least pick up the phone and talk to Legacy Precious Metals. Get your questions answered. You can talk to an IRA expert just by calling and finding out what it would take for you to get started. 866-528-1903. 866-528-1903. They've also got a free investor's guide you can download at LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Why don't you find out why I trust this company when I invest in gold and silver? Up next is Tony Dungy. And again, no introduction needed. 
And, you know, I, I remind him when I begin this conversation with him that I was sort of raised by John Madden in the football world. And he told me that once you're a coach, you, you always call him a coach. So I never called John, John, as many people did. I called him coach. And I used that same introduction with Tony Dungy. And here's his reaction. You know, I was sort of influenced by John Madden when I was working at Monday Night Football with him. And he told me, once a coach, always a coach. So you should always address a former coach <laughs> as coach. Do you like being called coach or do you prefer Tony? I don't mind either one. I was okay. called coach for so long. It really resonates with me. We have young kids who are adopted now that are, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. And they just say that all the time. Dad, why do people call you coach? They, they don't know me as a coach, and they're just like, where did that come from? So uh, I'm fine either way. Well, take them to Canton and tell them why people call you coach. I guess I could show them there. Yeah. There you go. I just can't help it. Every time I talk to a coach, I hear Madden like sitting on my show, call him coach, call him coach. So I will do that. Um, again, let me refer back to this from Pew Research. The U.S. has the world's highest rate of children living in single-parent households. For decades, the share of U.S. children living in single-parent households has been rising, accompanied by a decline in marriage rates and a rise in births outside of marriage. That's according to a new Pew Research Center study of 130 countries and territories that shows the United States has the world's uh, largest or highest rate of children living in single-parent households. And I, as I mentioned earlier, you spent a lot of time talking with young men, men who are incarcerated. And you've stood by this uh, assessment that you've heard from others, that one of the seemingly most important connective tissues among all these people is that they didn't have a dad in their house. Again, people will push back and say, that's not the only reason, or that's not the cause. Maybe it's not the cause, but it's certainly, we can't ignore this, right? It's, this is no coincidence. Yeah, it's it's not the only reason, but it, it certainly is a major contributing factor. And I, I really think it's a spiritual thing, Michelle. Um, I think Satan is attacking our society in, in that way. If I can separate families, if I can take it away from God's plan, and God's plan was mother, father, raise children, pass things on to them as a unit. And we do. We need it from both male and female perspective. So it's great that there's a mother's love that nothing can duplicate. And if you grow up without a mom, you miss that part of it. But there's the dad side too. There's the male side that is, is got to be there and be caring and instructive. And if you miss that, uh, you miss something. And so we, we need to have it together. Now, it doesn't always happen. You can have a death in the family and, uh, you know, things happen. We, we have divorce. We understand that. But if we go into it saying, well, we really don't need that model, uh, we can be fine with a single parent. I, I think statistics prove that we're not fine. Now, there would be some pushback. I, I can think of one of my dear friends who happens to be gay and she and her partner, they're married, are raising a son. They adopted a son together. They think they're doing the right thing. I, I just want to go here. It is a sensitive issue, but I know you're willing to talk about it. Yeah. You have been. If you've got two women raising children, how does that fit into your, to your view? I, I just think God designed the family so children would see 
what it's supposed to be like. And there's a male side of it. There's a female side of it. And yes, we're going to have situations where one is missing, the other is missing. We're going to have situations where uh, a child doesn't get to see all that. And yes, so you have surrogates that, that come in place, whether it's a coach, a step-parent, uh, a concerned other person. And that's great. We need that from everybody. And it, it certainly beats the alternative. But God's design, we have to understand, was a father, a mother, and a child. That, that's the family nucleus. And that's the way it functions best. I want to also read this from the Justice Department website. The Journal of Research in Crime Delinquency reports that the most reliable indicator of violent crime in a community is the proportion of fatherless families. Why do you think we're here? What, what, why, why is this going on? Why is this so prevalent in the United States of America? Well, again, I think it comes back to a spiritual basis. Number one, we've, we've kind of lost the godly definition of marriage. That, that you, uh, there, there's a way God designed it, that men and women find each other, they make a commitment, they get married, they have children in that order. And we've now said, well, marriage isn't that important. You can have children uh, without being married, and that's not a problem. And we've seen that for 40 years, the proliferation of that. And we think that it's not a problem. The commitment to stay together has not been there. Uh, Jesus said in the Bible that uh, what God put together in marriage, let no one separate. So marriage is supposed to be for life. Uh, d- does it happen? No, we've got a very high divorce rate in the United States. And all of this is, I, I think, Satan's way of just chipping away at the fiber of our, our country and what, what we're based on. So when you have people not getting married and having children, you have divorces, you have other things that happen. Uh, and then you, you've got families, all of a sudden we see those stats that you point out. So many people being raised in a non-traditional family. And it's, it's easy to say, well, that doesn't matter as long as love's there, that, that's all that's important. Uh, love is important, absolutely. And taking care and, and having that desire. And again, we've seen some tremendous examples of people being raised in single parent homes, people being raised in, in adoptive homes. But the design, God's design is, is the way it's supposed to be, and it, it's hard to beat that. You are referencing a, a spiritual framework quite a bit, a faith-based framework, yeah. which I know is very important to you. And I think there was a time in the last 10, 20 years of my life, I'll just get a little personal here, where I sort of thought, you know, yeah, going to church, yada, yada, yada. But as I get a little older and I watch my children and I see more of the world and I see this breakdown in something that was really part of the fabric of life here in America, no matter what your religion was or is, people had a belief and it formed a community around them through church, through different parishes, whatever the case may be. And we've seen a, a, a a pretty significant erosion in that, faith-based spiritual framework here in America as well. How much do you think that is contributing to this sort of laissez-faire, you know, don't need to get married. We can just live together or whatever the case may be. I, I, I want to say, I want to go on the record saying coach first that I don't, I don't want to judge anybody. I, I think every 
most people are really trying to do the right thing and trying to do their best. But a lot of the poo-pooing of traditional values has led to sort of this, I don't know, um, looser formed society that has fewer ports in which to tether, if you will, that, you know, fewer places for people to say, that's someplace I belong. That's someplace I can find a soft landing. That's someplace I can find guidance and safety. No, I, I agree. Uh, there was a time and, and for me growing up, uh, gosh, the, the people I grew up around, they did have a belief in the Bible. And yes, everybody's trying to do the right thing and try to do the best. But where is your foundation? What do you believe is right? What do you believe is true? And I think we've gotten to the point in the last 30 or 40 years where well, I can figure out my own truth. Whatever I, I feel that makes me happy, that's what we've got to do. And um, it, it's, it's leading to problems. It really is. And we, we're, we've got a big discussion now going on, gun, gun control. Yeah. What, what do we need to do? Well, yes, I'm not a gun person. And I, I'd be fine if we took every gun in the world and got rid of it. But I will say this, where we are as a society, we could take every gun in the United States and it's not going to stop people from harming each other. Mm-hmm. Right now we have that mentality. It's okay for me to harm you if I feel like I'm right. Mm-hmm. And so whether I have a gun, whether I have a knife, whether I get a bomb and blow you up, whether I run you down with my automobile, road rage, uh, th- there's, we, we just are losing the sense of right and wrong. I get that from the Bible. Uh, other people are going to say, well, I don't read the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. But where is your sense of right and wrong? Right. Okay, If it's wrong to shoot someone, it's just as wrong to run them down with a, a, a car. It's just as wrong to punch them in the mouth. Uh, and, and beat them up and leave them for dead on the, on the side of the street. So to me, we've got to get back to, in America, what is right and what is wrong. Is it any wonder that Tony Dungy remains one of the most respected figures in the NFL and really just in American life? He walks the walk every single day, and I admire him so much, and I'm so proud to call him a friend. Well, this has been Sideline Sanity, everyone. Be brave. Do good, and we'll see you next time. Happy to talk once again with Charles Thorngren, the CEO of Legacy Precious Metals. You know, I think it still is confusing to people, uh, some people, uh, as to why a precious metals investment would be a worthwhile one, particularly at this time when they're thinking, I'm doing all I can to put gas in the car. Why is now a particularly good time? And we'll go from there to how small of an investment is worthwhile for someone? You know, great question. And I think the the importance of why really comes into the fact that we have to save for ourselves, whether it's a little here, a little there, whether it's making it a plan and putting out so much paycheck, whether it's making sure we fund our retirement account. We have to realize we are responsible for ourselves in the long run. <laughs> you mean that no one else is going to ride up and save us, you know, on some white steed? It ain't going to happen. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. You know, the, and anyone who's promising to do that is getting ready to take advantage of you in some form or fashion. Yeah. And so so if if I'm an investor, a potential investor, and I'm looking at legacy precious metals and I'm saying to myself, yeah, I, I, this sounds smart. 
I don't have a lot to spend. What would you tell that person? I would say, do what you can. If you never start, you never get there. So the most important step you can take is saying, I'm going to take care of myself and my family. I'm going to make it a plan. I'm going to take action. I'm going to start in the way that's comfortable for me. That's the important thing. The first step is always the hardest. But once you take that first step, the second step is easier. And then you're moving. And then once you're in motion, it's hard to stop you. So that first step, most important step. I always tell people they can call and talk to an IRA expert or, or check out the, the guide that they can download for free, the investor's guide. What, what is the number one question that you get from people who are first-time investors? The biggest question I get, is this right for me? That is the question. And that comes from everyone. So, so everyone's asking the same, is this right for me? And yet we're all so unique. And, and yet it, it is a sound investment for just about any portfolio, isn't it? It is. We, even though we're all unique, that uniqueness is going to tailor the way we begin the investment. Okay. But we're all in the same situation. That's the one thing I think we seem to forget in today's society. Whether you agree with somebody or not, we're in this together. America is in this transition that we're in right now. We're dealing with the same issues. Some people like them, some don't, but we're all in it together, right? So the need is the same. How we prepare and how we invest is what changes from person to person, but we all have that same need. It's a great point. And again, I encourage people to, to, to just make the call, pick up the phone. That step is always the hardest. I'm not sure why that is in any kind of effort that you make in life, whether it's weight loss or exercise or investing some way to better your life. It always seems like that first hurdle is, is the challenge. Uh, but when they call, who, who are they going to talk to? Who, what, what's going to be on the other end of the line for them? Great question. You're, you're going to speak with one of our customer representatives and their job is not to sell you metals, right? We have a much different approach. We're going to answer all your questions. We're going to show you what options you have. And on the rare occasion, this isn't right for you. We're going to say this probably isn't right for you. Um, we have a gold company here, but you know, I, I say it all the time. What we actually deal in is customer service. We want each and every individual that calls to get the answers they need to be able to make the decision that's right for them. And we want to do that in a way that's not pushy, that's not salesy. And that's what makes my team so special. We care about each and every caller. And we're going to show you what options you have. And then you get to make an informed decision. So don't be afraid of the phone call. It's the best thing you can do. And this is why I am so honored and I feel privileged to be sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. They're the ones that I'm going to deal with. And I encourage you to pick up the phone, give them a call, even easier. Go check out their, their guide. It's a free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. But as you said, Charles, pick up the phone. You're going to talk to someone who can answer your specific questions and get get the ball rolling, get, get started, do something that is a long-term play for your family's benefit. Charles, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always great to be here. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.